From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room. With the simulated wood paneling and the shag carpeting, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hi all to those of you who are tuning us in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And my thanks to Chris Whitting and everyone at Syndication Networks for their continued hard work and support. Hey you, streaming us live on zoomeradio.ca and those of you checking us out on our YouTube live stream. The YouTube channel is Strange Planet. Please check it out and uh, hit that red sub button. And those of you in the live YouTube chat who join us every week, however... And wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Retired police detective Ingrid P. Dean, this hour as we continue to discuss the metaphysical and spiritual elements of police work. And she's sharing just some of the 60 true police stories of divine guidance, miracles, and intuition from her book, Spirit of the Badge. And let me give you the phone numbers because you'll find those are kind of handy when you're calling into a radio program if you're in the greater Toronto area. And again, we'll, I'd, I'd love to hear from all of you, but in particular, uh, police officers, first responders, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. And uh, Ingrid, again, once again, how do we get a copy of uh, Spirit of the Badge? Uh, please visit my website at uh, spiritofthebadge.com. And it has my email address and post office box address in order to order the book, Spirit of the Batch. There's a great story in here about a psychic janitor. Tell us about that. Um, that is a great story. And it was provided to me by a uh, police polygraph examiner uh, who helped solve an investigation through the psychic eye of a state police post janitor. And uh, in this case, the... Um, the suspect who was being polygraphed was an individual who was suspect in being involved in the disappearance and probable homicide of a lady. And what's so interesting about this story is the strange uh, synchronistic set of circumstances surrounding the case that involves another detective who happened to be watching the polygraph and gained information through the pretest interview. Um, about the case that he didn't know about. And uh, it matched uh, several tidbits of information he had received from a psychic janitor way prior to the polygraph, uh, such as the subject's true name and where the body could be buried. So it's a great story, and it, uh, it uh, kind of goes step-by-step step of what makes the, the um, incident so synchronistic. So, and how, how did this janitor, how was he involved in the case? Or was he just uh, someone who, it came, some information came to him or her and they related it, it to the police? I believe it was a, it was a male uh, a janitor and he volunteered the information. He saw uh, one of the troopers who had uh, 
uh, first worked on a case, on the case about a missing woman, and he gave him information like what the suspect's first name was, which was Raul, R-A-U-L. And the um, uh, polygraph uh, examiner uh, was able to figure out that the person he was polygraphing had a, had a different name, and the suspect gave his real name to the polygraph examiner, which was Raul, uh, the exact name the janitor had given a few months ago uh, to one of the investigating troopers. So I thought that was very um, interesting, you know, uh, unusual, and um, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences, but um, uh, this, um, this helped. This information helped. And what are... What are police officers told, either in police college or or, a, or elsewhere or afterwards, perhaps, by their superiors, etc., uh, about how to deal with tips from people on the, let's say, on the phone who claim they're psychics? I mean, do do they judiciously take this information down, or do they tend to be dismissive? Or, I mean, how are you told to deal with with uh, tips from people who claim to be psychic? In my police academy, they said to uh, go ahead and write down that information. You never know. Um, I, they said nothing, it doesn't hurt to, to go ahead and take down that information because it can be useful later. You know, if you can't solve a case and this is your, your last resort, you'll have that extra information to look at. Now, some officers are more open to, to doing that and taking down the information, while other officers would rather try to, you know, use uh, just case facts. It just really depends on how open that investigator is, you know, to, to receiving information from a psychic. Every department's different. In my department, they, uh, they were open about it. Michigan State Police. They said, "Go ahead and, and write that down if you get a tip from a psychic." Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's say hi to Brian in Toronto. Brian, good evening, good morning, and welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello. Hi there. Is that Brian? No, no, it's Melanie. How are you? Oh, okay. Melanie, Hello. we'll take your call first. Thank you so much. Uh, wonderful program as usual. Um, uh, Ingrid, I was wondering. Have you ever or have any police officers ever sensed maybe a police officer that you work with or you know of or you run into who may have a bit of a sociopathic personality? Does your intuition help you in that or do you go by other ways or means of detecting someone who's on the police force that may not be um, up for Whoops, we lost Melanie. Uh, well, I, I can still ask, answer her question. Um, we're very sensitive to the partners who we work with and our fellow coworkers. And while, you know, whether you call it intuition or gut Lock. instinct, um, if there is um, something that doesn't feel right, you know, about a co- coworker, um, I, I think officers are very in tune to that because we protect each other's back. So, um, you know, if a situation arose where, you know, an officer had a, a gut feeling that there was something, you know, mentally wrong, 
you know, with a fellow coworker or partner, um, I'm sure that they would mention something to supervision. Mm-hmm. Um, would they be intimidated or afraid for their own safety um, to do something uh, if they knew the officer wasn't right or was actually uh, involved in something criminal or committed a criminal act or a lie? Would a police officer be intimidated and afraid of another police officer to do anything about it? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. At least not in my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was uh, in uh, the Michigan State Police for 22 plus years, and whenever we had a problem or a challenge or um, something didn't uh, feel right with a, a fellow coworker, um, we didn't hesitate to say something to supervision mm-hmm. um, because we're, we're we're protecting each other and we're protecting the public. That's true. So I, I never experienced an officer ever being intimidated or afraid to talk mm-hmm. about um, a, another fellow officer mm-hmm. um, if there were really problems or something going on that they sensed. They they would say something. Melanie, thank you for well, the call. Thank you. thank you for your godly work. Thank you, oh, indeed. You're welcome. It is the Lord's work. Okay. Uh, I, you know, just further to that point, I, I would think, you know, that... Uh, when you have, I mean, every organization, they have their, you know, uh, they have a bad apple. Uh, Absolutely. And because it only takes one uh, to sort of impugn the reputation of the entire force, that, that uh, as soon as it, that person is sussed out, everyone would sort of circle the wagons and, and make sure that that person is as being, uh, you know, it, you know uh, dealt with properly. Exactly. I mean, we have a, a reputation to uphold, and um, our integrity means everything. So, um, uh, yeah, in, in my experience, I never sensed an officer ever being, you know, afraid to talk about something that, you know, could end up being a, a bad or threatening situation. They would They would go to supervision, and usually every agency has a certain protocol for that, rules to follow. All right, now we'll welcome Brian in Toronto. Brian? Hi. Hi, Richard. Hi. Yeah, I was uh, I was a federal officer uh, for uh, over 25 years, and I was suspended from duty, and I went to a mall, and I heard a lot of commotion, and it turned out that uh, a person stole some socks, and he stabbed the owner, and the owner was tr- uh, trying to chase him. And I, I ran after him, ran down a block, and we got in a struggle. And I arrested them, but I didn't have any handcuffs or anything because I was suspended. Right. And uh, we got in a fight in uh, the loading dock when I put, when I took him back in the mall with a security guard. And then his hands disappeared. I didn't know where they went, so I threw him with a judo throw. I landed on top of him. I twisted his neck, and I twisted it in a certain way that I could break it. And I just looked at him, and I said, if you struggle with me, I'm going to break your neck. And I, I just said it in my mind. I didn't say it verbally. His, both his eyes widened so you could see the white in the top and the bottom of his eye, and he stopped struggling. And then we found out that he had the knife still in his pocket. It was on his hand. And they had seven types of different DNA on that knife that oh he used my. before. And he also killed a, 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 a security guard mall the week before with the same knife. Wow. You had a serial killer yeah. in, your, in your grasp, and you could have been the next victim. That's right. That's right. It's, I just had that feeling. I don't know what I, I was. I was. I had him in the arm lock, 
And then he struggled, and his, his hands disappeared. And I said, you know, I said, there's something bad going on. I have to do something. And I just put my arm around his, around his neck, and I threw him with a hip toss. I landed on him, and I squashed him, and I pulled up the neck, and I twisted it. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was just a weird feeling. Like, I was inside of his head, and he was inside my head, but no words. Well, telepathy. Thank, yes, telepathy. Yeah. Great, great story, Brian. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah, Thanks. bravo Thanks. for that. Thanks. Okay. Bye. 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 Nonverbal communication. I say bravo in in the sense that people off duty, you know, um, they don't have to necessarily respond to situations like that. But when I hear stories like that, uh, and officers are off duty, like at a at a bank that's being robbed, and and they do um, heroic acts like that, even though they don't have to. Um, they—they're my heroes. So, yeah. Is there anything about uh, police work in, uh, um, in in the sense that you know there the adrenaline is going? I mean, when they're in uh, the thick of it, uh, apprehending somebody, or they're being fired upon, or they're in a stand-down type situation, uh, is there anything there? Do you think that maybe contributes to uh, psychic ability or in- intuition? I think that because as officers that we are subjected to such intense moments like that, that it almost makes us a little bit uh, hypersensitive or more sensitive than a normal person. And I do think that it develops in time because of the nature of our work. We become more and more intuitively sensitive with that gut instinct so um that that's a great question i think that officers are way more sensitive than people think they are you know the stereotypical image is that you know they're rough around the edges and are not sensitive to anything and they're black and white and it's simply not true and that was one of the reasons that i put this project together and compiled this book is because I want the public to see that we don't necessarily fit that stereotypical image that the media projects us to be. 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740 and toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740- 4740, 1-866-740-4740. We're here with Ingrid Dean, retired police detective, over 20 years experience with uh, Michigan Police, and her book, Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. Would love to hear from first responders and police officers who have perhaps uh, had uh, a paranormal experience on the job or uh, an instance of remarkable synchronicity. Uh, uh, Brian was uh, telling us about his encounter with uh, a serial killer, and, and Brian could have ended up, you know, the victim in that case. Uh, the Grim Reaper comes to mind, and there's a story about uh, the Grim Reaper in the book that involves a rookie. Uh, tell us about the Grim Reaper. Uh, the Grim Reaper is a, it's a heartfelt story and it's told by a city police officer and regarding um, a young boy named Johnny who um, he ended up talking with 
after an accident just occurred. Um, the boy was in a wreck, and he was uh, dying. And at the same time, um, people were, were throwing rocks at the officer who was trying to save the boy's life and, you know, shouting out outlandish-type profanities like, you know, you killed him, you did it, you chased him, and that's what caused his death. It was a public that was jumping to conclusions and throwing rocks at him. And um, the boy eventually dies at the scene, but later that night the officer has a dream in which the um, Grim Reaper appears and gives him a special message. So it's also a story about um, the messages we receive in dreams. Can you share that message with us? Um, I don't know the the specific words that the Grim Reaper said to him, but it was the fact that, you know, um, it was the boy's time to go and that, you know, officers like you think that you can, you know, save everybody, but, you know, indeed, some, sometimes you can't and it's just time for that person to go. And that was essentially what the Grim Reaper was saying. I would imagine that uh, uh, police officers and and first responders in general have quite an active dream life because obviously after a, a, a day on the job uh, that's filled often with violence and death or, you know, it can be uplifting, but it often is, you know, they see the worst and the best in people. Um, how about for you? I mean, did you find that you were you you must have had just some wild dreams throughout your career as a police officer? I I am a very active dreamer, absolutely. Um, I don't know if all officers are like that, but um, my dreams are are often very adventurous and colorful, and um, it brings to mind uh, a story in the book that I contributed um, that is called the clairvoyant dream. And it was on the morning of 9-11, and I was um, uh, sleeping, and the dream was very clear and short. Uh, the dream was that I was some type of um, a, a leader with a group of people who were like uh, rebellions, or rebellers, and um, uh, there were bombs going off, and I was leading the group to a building where I thought that we could hide. And when we went into the building, the building got bombed, and it was all fiery and smoky, and we were all uh, crawling on the floor um, in order to breathe. And what made the, the dream so um, kind of traumatizing is that it... Um, was the first time that I felt like uh, death was inevitable in the dream. I couldn't go up, and we couldn't go down the stairs. And so that morning, I am jogging around the track with my sister just before work, and I tell her all about the dream. And I said, "What do you think it could mean?" And she said, "Boy, I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe it could be like a former lifetime or something like that." And then we, I, I kind of let it go, and I went to work, and I think it was about, uh, it was between 8 and 8.20 when the first plane went through the first twin tower, and my partner came running in and said, Ingrid, 
he said a, a plane just went into a twin tower, and then he ran off again. And I thought to myself, you know, it was probably just a, a private pilot, you know, had navigational problems and accidentally, you know, hit a building in New York. And I didn't think anything of it. And then my partner ran back in again and said, Ingrid, he said, a second uh, plane, a jetliner, a second one went into the other building. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the dream that I had earlier um, had a lot of symbolism in it that was consistent with what just happened. And so I ran to the conference room where everybody was seated and watching uh, the Twin Towers burning, and I knew what was going to happen, and that was that the the buildings were going to come down. And that was because that was the end of my dream, is that that's why I felt death was inevitable in the dream, is because the building toppled on top of us, and I woke up. My word. So it's really strange, you know, I don't know... You know, why don't I have dreams of other terrible, traumatic things? Who who knows? But in that particular situation, I think because so many police officers were killed in that, that, that might have been the connection that I had. So Absolutely. I felt like I had stepped into the future. Remarkable, remarkable story. Yeah. Ingrid, stay with us. Spirit of the Badge, more true police stories on the other side. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Welcome back to Ingrid Dean, a retired police detective and author of Spirit of the Badge, 62 Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. And, you know, we've talked about symbols and signs and synchronicities. In fact, that's a whole sort of section in the book. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about... Uh, a story that um, really touched me. It's uh, it's called A Trooper's Debt on Christmas Day. Can you share that with us, Ingrid? I love that one. That is one of my favorite stories in the book. Mine too. And uh, it is a, another story of synchronicity and amazing coincidences that take place with no no causal relationship but end up being extremely meaningful later. And the story starts out about how a man becomes a trooper, uh, even though his mother wants him to be a minister, pastor, and his father wants him to be a surgeon. And as a young adolescent, in fact, the the man receives a, a unique ring from his father that symbolizes what a surgeon might wear on his finger. So the man uh, eventually follows his own dream, and he becomes a uh, Washington state trooper, despite his parents' preferences. And then the story kind of fast-forwards two years into his career, and the trooper is dispatched to a vehicular uh, accident uh, where he ends up saving the lives of a husband and wife while their little boy is watching from the back seat of the the vehicle, which is pretty mangled. Um, The trooper uh, stops the mother from bleeding to death and also saves uh, his father. And so the little boy, who is six at the time, uh, says a prayer to God to uh, please help his parents live, and he also notices the unique ring that the trooper's wearing. 
Then the story fast forwards to uh, 20 years later uh, when the trooper's much older but still on patrol, and he has just been told that his uh, daughter and granddaughter were in a very bad accident, and it doesn't look like his granddaughter's going to make it, uh, who he just, you know, is the love of his life. And so the trooper, you know, ends up sitting in the hospital waiting room uh, just after being told this situation when these two men uh, start walking through the room and are talking, and one man suddenly stops talking in mid-sentence, and he says, he says, it's him, you know, the, the trooper sitting over there with the ring. And it ends up being that the little boy in the mangled vehicle from 20 years ago who watched the trooper save his mother's life uh, was that man, and he's now a pastor of the largest Baptist church in Spokane, and he sits down next to the trooper and actually recites the same, you know, heartfelt prayer for his uh, daughter and granddaughter while his younger brother, who, who he was walking with, uh, is one of the best surgeons in Washington, and he goes immediately to operate on the trooper's granddaughter. So interestingly, the surgeon uh, would have never been born if the trooper had not saved the pastor's mother in that accident um, when he was a little boy. Right, right. And the trooper's granddaughter lived. And so it's a heartwarming story of synchronicity. Um, and, and you'll see more of those synchronicities uh, when you read it. Right. I want to dive right back into another story here. It's called Murder 101. Yeah. That's told by a detective, and it's a case that he solves about a man who gets shot six times, and the man is like a pillar of the community, and there are no, absolutely no leads in the investigation. So it almost looks like the perfect murder with very little evidence except for these 38 bullets that were used to kill the man. What I find so endearing about the story is that the detective believes his intuition comes from the Holy Ghost, and he shares how he listens for the Holy Ghost. And whatever you want to call intuition, you know, whether it's a gut feeling, ESP, psychic phenomena, or the Holy Ghost, I mean, personally, I, you know, I believe something extra does exist that we can all draw upon for advice in all aspects of our lives so anyway this detective solves this case with virtually no leads but through his personal connection with spirit and the messages that he receives in his head and he has unexplained urges that lead him to solve the case which are all embedded in the story it's a great detective story since this book came out and it's been out a few years do you have now police officers and first responders now reaching out to you, even unsolicited, saying, because they want to unburden themselves with something that's happened to them? I have a nice collection right now, but just not quite enough to, to do a second book. Um, and yes, they do reach out uh, through my website, spiritofthebadge.com. Um, I need a few more stories, so if there, again, are listeners out there, whether you're a police officer, EMS, firefighter, um, I could use um, another 15 to 20 stories to complete another book. 
well, great if you contacted me. Well, hopefully um, those people that will uh, will reach you through the website. Give us that website again. Spiritofthebadge.com. Spiritofthebadge.com. All right. I want to talk to you about death. And, I mean, it's not necessarily a story in the book, but I'm, I'm wondering about maybe personal experiences. I mean, have you... We, I've, I've talked to a number of um, people that work in ERs, and they've been present, obviously, at, at a death, uh, and have had very strange experiences. I mean, we hear about near-death experiences from the perspective of the person who has died and sort of come back, but also people who witness deaths have near-death experiences. Sure. Have you Have you ever had anything like that happen to you or someone, maybe a, a colleague, I've had a near-death experience, which is not in the book Spirit of the Badge. It's in the other book of True Police Stories of the Strange and Unexplained, which listeners can still buy from Amazon, but uh, in the used section, because the publisher is no longer printing the book. But you can still purchase it as a used book. And um, it's the last story in the book. And it's about uh, a situation in which I get involved in a chase uh, with a truck. There's three people in the truck that look uh, pretty young, but they're going over 100 miles an hour. And I get a radio call that the truck is about to go through my area. And so I pull ahead of the truck, uh, and there's another patrol car behind the truck chasing it, and our intention is to box in the vehicle and gradually slow it down so that nobody gets hurt. And uh, unfortunately, um, I got rammed. Uh, The vehicle uh, totally disregarded our intentions and um, rammed me in the right rear bumper, and we were going over 100. Um, I was trying to slow, slow that truck down but they didn't care and so i got rammed and the patrol car spun around several times and then flew off the roadway and landed upside down between two trees Mm. what's interesting is what i went through in just a few seconds um i call it a near-death experience even though i didn't get hurt and i walked out with just a few scratches I still experienced what people sometimes call the Akashic Records, yes. where all of a sudden your your whole life and maybe before <laughs> before your life, other lives start um, uh, going through your mind. There were so many things that happened in just a few seconds because I really thought that I was going to probably die because I was going so fast, you know, uh, trying to to slow down that vehicle. So the story is the last story in um, the published version of Spirit of the Badge. And what what information did you access from the Akashic Record? Uh, I thought I saw prior lifetimes that were of no real significance. You know, I wasn't anybody famous or, you know, Queen Elizabeth, none of that. But one took place in Scotland, and I could hear uh, bagpipes. And um, another one was just like a, a common uh, type um, uh, factory worker, like in, in the 20s or 30s. And 
it, it was the images were interesting because they weren't part of this life. So I uh, kind of assumed later that they could have been the beginnings of what people call the Akashic Records. And imagine all of that in just a fleeting moment. Yeah. As the car is careening out of control. We'll take another quick time out, come back and discuss further. True police stories of divine guidance, miracles and intuition, and again, your phone calls. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And this has been an eye-opening introduction to the human side of law enforcement, retired Police Detective Ingrid P. Dean uh, has been with us for the entire program and her book, Spirit of the Badge, 60 True Police Stories of Divine Guidance, Miracles, and Intuition. And um, uh, there's a story, in again, this is in the section called Lessons of the Heart. It's uh, my day in court, and this involves uh, someone who wanted to commit suicide by police officers, uh, which is really a, it's a horrible thing, not only to, to, to imagine someone wanting to take their own life, but wanting to do it at the hands of police officers, to lay that on a police officer, practically daring them, begging them to shoot them. Tell us about this, this story involving this um, Allen individual. It's, it's a definitely a heart story, and um, uh, two police officers uh, go to a safety welfare check uh, on a man who placed a suicide-like voicemail on an answering machine. Uh, the officers find him, uh, but he does have a gun, and he's threatening to shoot himself in the mouth if they don't get out of his house. Then the man staggers towards the officers and starts, yelling in a very slurred voice, you know, get out of my house. If you don't, I will kill you, and actually points his weapon uh, at both officers. They're looking right down the barrel of his gun at point-blank range. And what's so interesting is that the officers um, picked up intuitively that this man was probably mentally ill and... um, they were somehow able to find their way out of the house rather than shooting the man. And they could have done that, but they did not. And uh, they get out of the house, they hide behind a tree, and then the man actually shoots at them but hits the tree. So medics eventually arrive and they um, coax the man out of the house and uh, take him to the hospital and give him treatment. But the man is later arrested for felonious assault on a police officer, uh, which is, is understandable. Those, those officers could have been killed. And during court, the defense attorney says to the officer um, who's on the stand now, he says, well, you know, if my client really assaulted you and pointed a gun at you, you know, why didn't you shoot him? You know, aren't you a trained killer? You know, you're trained to shoot anyone who puts you in danger, right? You know, aren't you trained to shoot when a gun is pointed at you? And so the defense attorney um, was not very nice and um, ended up saying, you know, if my client really pointed a, a weapon at you and he was so dangerous, then why didn't you shoot your gun? And the officer is, is shocked 
you know, by those questions, and he eventually stammers out, and he says, you know, I didn't take this job to shoot anybody. Uh, And you could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom, and the officer looks straight at the jury, and he says, you know, my job is not to shoot people. You know, I took this job to help people. Uh, My job was to save this man's life. And uh, the jury apparently believed him because the man was convicted of felonious assault. Right, right. So it's it's a heart heartwarming story about what we go through sometimes. Even when we make really good decisions, sometimes we still get attacked, whether it's by the public or a defense attorney, you know, in court while we're testifying. What is that old saying? No good deed ever goes unpunished. <laughs> That's right. Ingrid, uh, let me ask you a personal question. I don't know if this is out of line, but have you ever had to to shoot someone? No, thank God. You know, it's just a terrible thing um, that sometimes happens uh, with officers, and um, they they never forget that, whether the person was considered a bad guy or not, because we all have, you know... um, good things and bad things about us. We're, we're all human beings, and when we actually have to shoot someone, um, it's terribly painful. And I don't think the public realizes the trauma that goes with that. Even when we have to shoot, you know, what we call a bad person, because that person's still human. We're all human, and we all have, you know, all sorts of issues inside of us. Everybody's, you know got their own set of, you know, problems and issues to deal with. So most police officers feel really bad if they ever have to shoot someone. Spirit of the Badge, 62 police stories of divine guidance, miracles, and intuition. Ingrid Dean will stay with us. One segment remains, and we'll come back, and uh, perhaps we'll have time to work in a call or two and maybe even share a story or two. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant. All right. We couldn't uh, let this evening go by without talking about uh, police encounters with unexplained phenomena, UFOs perhaps. Tell us about the encounter back in uh, 2002. This is Holland, Michigan. Yes, this is a story that's being told uh, by a retired police officer who had what he believes to be a genuine encounter with the classic gray four-foot-tall aliens that are commonly seen in the science fiction movies and books. The ones with the large black almond-shaped eyes and the long slender arms and legs, according to his story, they communicated with him telepathically. They said they needed his help. The officer remembers feeling paralyzed, standing in his backyard and looking up at a huge craft that was hovering over and felt like he already knew these people but had forgotten, like he had met them before. 
and he remembers two other humans who he did not know who were standing near him who were also appeared to be paralyzed and breathing heavily like he was. And the next thing he remembers is a thunderous sound and a two to three hundred foot wide opening in the night sky where the craft goes into and then the sky closes shut. And then he says next thing he knows he's back inside the house and he draws a picture of the craft with his daughter's crayons and he initially did not share his experience with his wife. But his daughter tells him the very next day that she woke up and saw a lot of bright flashing lights outside the roof dormer window. And instead of going back to bed, she went to sleep on the living room floor because the lights scared her. It's an amazing story, and I think that it takes courage for officers to share (laughs) this type of a story because, you know, people have various opinions on whether UFOs exist and aliens and extraterrestrials. So I found it very interesting and put it under unexplainable phenomena. Yes, well, Gary Heseltine, who has been on this program a number of times, actually has a, a huge database in the, uh, the United Kingdom filled with police encounters with UFOs. And what is remarkable to me is, you know, when we have these sightings from first responders, but particularly police, because they are trained observers. To me, they are, along with airline pilots, among the most credible witnesses. So there's an amazing story in here. It's it's actually a little grisly in parts because it involves a man who tried to kill his wife. Two police officers who responded to the call were also shot. They were down. And essentially, kind of a SWAT team were called in. The wife was bleeding to death. Her arm had been blown off. And in order to save her, to get her out of that house, they had to take a life in order to save a life. Take us uh, through this amazing story called The Amazing Shot. You know, it is amazing because it really reflects the way many police officers think when they have to make that decision to shoot someone. And the officer from this team had a lot of thoughts going through his head that he talks about. And intuitively, he doesn't want to shoot the man. For one, the man has Alzheimer's. And sometimes when you're in the progressed stage of that disease, um, there's a lot of anger that festers up. So he's ill. And um, he sees the man a couple times looking through a small window of his trailer and he has a couple opportunities to shoot him, but he's struggling internally on whether to do that or not. But as you said, he's already hurt a woman very badly, and so he says a prayer that he doesn't hurt the man, even though he takes the shot. The end of the story is is remarkable. It's very heartfelt because he takes the shot, but somehow... The bullet shears off of the window and does not hit the man. And this is someone who is an expert shot. So he considered it a miracle, and that's why the story is called The Amazing Shot, because um, actually the bullet goes through the window, but it hits the man's shoulder, so it's not fatal. And um, everybody is okay and and you know the man gets medical care 
and the, the trooper feels a whole lot better. But he considers that um, uh, an answered prayer. Right. Uh, because he, he really didn't want to kill the man. But he had, they had to do something before the man killed his wife. And I was correct, there were two officers also injured? They were, they were down, correct? Yes, I forgot about that part. Well, yeah, they were. Because, yeah. you know, when, you, when your colleagues have been injured, uh, I mean, to show that kind of restraint in that situation is remarkable. That's what I thought. It is remarkable because there's so much going through your mind and heart in a situation like that. And uh, uh, it all ended up uh, positive. So um, that's what makes it heartfelt is that his wish came, came true and he didn't kill the man. We just have time for one more story. Swimming out of body. That, that is, that's a good story too, and it's told by a uh, sheriff's deputy who comes to the aid of a, of a drowning man. Uh, it takes place at night, and the man is in the middle of a, a very, very cold northern Michigan lake, and he's screaming for help because his canoe is uh, tipped over and he's uh, freezing to death. So the deputy shares how uh, he goes into the water and how his own body goes into shock from the freezing water filling up his uniform and and his whole uh, respiratory system nearly shuts down and he has an out-of-body experience. So, you know, this is an excellent swimmer who grew up in Florida, but he had never experienced such intense cold weather uh, in northern Michigan in late November. So he shares about his uh, survival instincts and everything that he does to save that man. And it's a, it's a great story. Have you had a, an encounter with the paranormal? I mean, we talked about your, your, your incredible uh, prescient dream on the morning of 9-11. But what about the paranormal? Well, um, I, <laughs> I have certainly seen... Um, Apparition since I was young, um, and, and it did carry through in my police work. Um, one particular um, incident that occurred, I, I consider it paranormal. Um, I, was, I had just gotten home from work, uh, from patrol, and it was thundering and lightning. It was a um, very early morning hour. Uh, I fell asleep on uh, the bed in my bedroom, which had a wooden frame around it, thank goodness, because this huge uh, ball of lights came through the window and sat right in front of me like five feet hovering. And, and the ball of lights looked like little cut-up pieces of tinsel, um, like from a Christmas tree and silvery and they were making a sound like 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 rats you know it was it was weird and so i gripped the wooden sides of the bed because i intuitively knew it looked electrical so um the name of the story is the electrical guest um it's in spirit of the badge and um uh it hovered for a good five to eight seconds, which seemed like eternity because it was at least three foot in diameter. And um, 
uh, shimmering. And then it, it's, it's, it's like it has intelligence, is, is what it looked like. It's In- like it was looking at me. Ingrid, people will have to... And then it just went into the wall and disappeared. Wow. <laughs> and they'll have to read the, uh, the book to get the full story. Ingrid, yes. thank you so much. Spirit of the Badge, it's been a delight meeting you and speaking with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. All the best. Ingrid P. Right, Dean. Thank you. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home.